0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. This is the health, medicine, and bioscience edition. It's my job here to find the top experts in their fields, whatever field that may be. I've interviewed over 2,000 researchers, clinicians, scientists, et cetera. Today, joining the pack is uh, Dr. Onye Iwala. She's at the UNC School of Medicine, Division of Rheumatology, Allergy, and Immunology. Uh, she's actually an assistant professor of medicine in this area, and she specializes in environmental allergies, you know, allergic rhinitis, chronic hives, swelling, et cetera, food allergies, and anaphylaxis. So, Onya, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So, uh, first of all, why do you do what you do? You know, what what attracted you to specifically this area and why environmental allergies?
2: Yeah. So, the thing that really drew me to the field of allergy and immunology was actually the science behind it. So, my junior year in college, I took my first basic immunology class uh, and I was just enthralled. Because first of all, it was the first basic science class that I felt I could see direct relevance to human health, and I'd wanted to be a doctor, so that was very exciting to me. But then it was just, it's so complicated and so beautiful in a way, and, um, and so that really drew me toward the field of allergy immunology. And then later on, you know, after I completed my PhD in immunology and then went on to do a residency in internal medicine... I just found that when I took care of patients who had concerns that were related to allergy or immunology, so environmental allergies or allergic rhinitis, which is basically like hay fever or chronic hives or food allergies, I just found it very exciting to listen to these patients, to try to figure out what was going on. And then the other thing is that it often feels like when a patient is describing their symptoms to me... There's an opportunity to think like a scientist right there in the room with the patient and since I I'm primarily a researcher um, at UNC in Chapel Hill that also really draws me to the field of allergy.
1: Okay. And then um, so you're looking at uh, certain conditions. So let's talk about some of them. What what do you you know, I'm sure you're going to say a lot of them are on the rise cuz everything seems <laughs> to be on the rise nowadays unfortunately. Right. What yeah. what are the um the major conditions that you see? you know, let's say, especially in the children or young adults. And, and, you know, let's talk about those.
2: Yeah. So I think the biggest one and the one that a lot of people have great familiarity with is food allergy. And there's been a lot in both the scientific literature and in the lay press about how food allergies are really on the rise. And people are very concerned about food allergies being on the rise because until last month, there were no FDA-approved Treatments for food allergy, and and as of now, even with the announcement of this new food allergy treatment, which I can get into later, there's still no cure for food allergies. Um, and then the other thing that people have noticed is that there seems to be a growing epidemic in the number of people, especially in the United States and other developing country and other developed rather countries, industrial nations, there seems to be a rise in the number of people that actually have food allergies. And there's been a lot of speculation as to why this might be the case, and some of the thoughts include the fact that we're changing our environment, and we're almost we're changing the microbes that we live with within our environment. Whether it's through the use of antibiotics, whether it's through the use of a lot of detergents and things that we use to sterilize, you know, our environment and our bodies. Um, these are just some of the theories that by changing our microbial surroundings and our inner microbial communities, like within our skin and in our gut, that we're changing the way our immune system deals with external agents, and food is essentially an external agent, and that may be contributing to the rise in food allergies.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Um, So if we're looking at microbiome, Mm -hmm. everyone always talks about the gut microbiome, but is there any point or interaction looking at the nasal microbiome, the oral microbiome, the traditional, like, seeds of allergic response, you know, at least for yeah. rhinitis and things like that? Do you look at that?
2: Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. So I, um, I, my research doesn't focus primarily on the microbiome, although I'd like to move into that area. It's a hot area and very interesting. But I'm glad you asked about microbiomes outside of the gut because you're right. People typically think of the gut microbiome as our first, you know, the first thought when microbiome comes to mind, because it makes sense. We know that our gut is exposed to the outside world. It interacts with so many different things from our outside world whenever we eat. Um, And it's, it's easy and straightforward to at least measure surrogates of the gut microbiome because you can collect stool, you know, basically people's poop. And you can study the microbial communities within that stool um, you know it's, it, it might not be a direct actually it 's typically not a direct reflection of the microbes that live on the lining or the mucosa of the gut, but at least it gives you some accessible way to to look at it in some way but there are lots of microbes that live on the skin, and when it comes to food allergies, um, this really comes into play because Uh, We think that part of the reason why people may become sensitized to foods, and by sensitized I mean that they develop IgE, allergy antibodies to the food, we think that part of the reason that happens could be because they're exposed to the food through the skin. And specifically, they're exposed to the food through skin that's been disrupted. So it's not healthy skin, but some sort of disruption has happened to the skin, either trauma or usually eczema. So atopic dermatitis, you know, that scratchy, itchy, flaky skin. It's often in, like, the elbow area, a little bit on the face. It it turns out that in individuals that have atopic dermatitis, you have disruptions of the skin microbiome. And, you know, we don't have any um, extensive studies on this, but it could be that disruption of the skin microbiome can contribute to, you know, an abnormal or a strange way that the immune system then interacts with food um, that, it, that you're exposed to basically through your skin surface. So that's one microbiome site that we don't often <coughs> talk about, or, but I think we'll start to talk about a lot more. And then you asked also about the microbiome in the nose, like in your sinuses and your nasal passages. And yeah. um, that's also you know, a field that people are starting to look at in more depth and more detail to try to see if we can explain why some individuals are more prone to having allergic rhinitis or chronic sinus disease and chronic sinus infections. And people are also concerned about you know the formation of like biofilms. So when when microbes come together and form a community, they often can produce a bunch of different chemicals that result in a film formation. And when that happens, it can be difficult to actually treat those bacteria or microbes with antimicrobial products or antibiotics. And so people are really interested in understanding, um, you know, how these communities form whether they form in the nose and whether how they form in the nose impacts our treatments for allergic rhinitis and also chronic sinusitis.
1: So um, when you look at the conditions that you study, what does, let's, let's take a couple of them and Mm -hmm. tell me what traditional science is saying. And then what are you seeing either anecdotally or with your own studies that's different?
2: Okay. So I think let's talk about food allergy. So, you know, with food allergy, um, when I, when i say food allergy i'm talking about a classic or a conventional immediate hypersensitivity response to a food that's driven by this allergy antibody called ige okay and so you know our conventional wisdom about food allergies is that people form these allergy ige antibodies to proteins so if you're talking about say peanut allergy or milk allergy or soy allergy that you're forming these IgE allergy antibodies to proteins that make up the food. Uh, In addition, our understanding about conventional food allergies is that as soon as you ingest the food, within minutes you start to have symptoms that go along with an allergic reaction. And for conventional food allergies, if you don't have symptoms within two hours or less, then we don't consider it to be an IgE-mediated hypersensitivity response to the food. But the research that I'm involved in right now, along with my colleagues at UNC, um, including Dr. Scott Cummings, actually, is related to, uh, oh, let's call it a weird, it's like an unconventional IgE-mediated food allergy. And so this is called alpha-gal syndrome or alpha-gal um, delayed allergy to mammalian meat or red meat. Cool. So the reason why this allergy is unconventional and doesn't fit the common rubric or the common ways we understand conventional IgE food allergies is because this time patients are making these IgE allergy antibodies to a sugar. So they're making it to a carbohydrate and the carbohydrate can be attached to proteins or it can be attached to fats or lipids. And so it's really unusual and it hasn't really been described for any other kind of food allergy where uh, the allergic person is actually making allergy antibodies to a carbohydrate as opposed to a protein. Then the other weird thing about alpha-gal syndrome or alpha-gal mammalian meat allergy is that you don't develop the significant symptoms until hours after you've ingested the um, carbohydrate, you know, attached to the proteins of these meats. So people will have like a steak dinner and then wake up in the middle of the night, six or eight hours later, itching with hives or having difficulty breathing or feeling dizzy or lightheaded. So instead of having a reaction within minutes, you're having a reaction hours later. So it can make it very difficult to diagnose this particular kind of IgE food allergy, and it just sets it apart from the conventional protein-based IgE food allergies.
1: Okay. um, So... In a short-acting versus a long-acting food allergy, what do you think is happening? What do you think the uh, the steps in the body are to cause the allergy?
2: To cause the allergy. So that's also a great question. So, so, you know, in a conventional food allergy, what happens first is that you're exposed to the food in some way. Either you eat it once before, or perhaps you're exposed to it through your skin or through your nasal passages, airways. In some way, you get exposed to the food. Um, the exposure to the food... Um, basically tells your immune system, for some reason, to start creating an environment with chemicals that push the B cells, like the B immune cells in your body, to start making IgE allergy antibodies. It's not entirely clear what kinds of signals or why the body will shift and tell the, these, allergy B, these B cells to start making the IgE allergy antibodies. There's a lot of research into this area trying to answer that question. But at any rate, your B cells start making these IgE antibodies, and the IgE antibodies can then attach themselves to what we call allergy effector cells. And so allergy effector cells includes mast cells and basophils. And basically, the basophils can circulate around in your bloodstream, but the mast cells stay in tissues and organs, so they're the cells that are in your skin, they're the cells that are in your gut and your GI tract, in your airways, in your nose, so on and so forth. All of these allergy effector cells have these IgE allergy antibodies attached to them, and they're specific for different foods. So, for example, you may have peanut IgEs attached to these mast cells and basophils. So once that happens, we call you sensitized. You're now sensitized to the food. But it's only after you ingest the food a second time, this time the the food now is recognized by these allergy IgE antibodies on the mast cells and the basophils, and it turns those cells on and causes them to explode and release a lot of histamine. And so once histamine is released into the tissue environment, be it the skin or the lungs or the gut or, you know, your throat, that's when people start to have symptoms, because histamine causes blood vessels to be dilated and leaky. So you get fluid coming into the skin or into the gut, wherever the mast cell or basophil happens to be located. And histamine can also bind to histamine receptors on nerves and cause an itching sensation. So that's why people typically have itching and swelling when they eat the food, and that's the immediate response. Now, with alpha-gal allergy, the thought is that perhaps because some of this alpha-gal is on... (laughs) fat, like on fat molecules instead of on proteins, that there's a delay in the absorption and processing of these fat molecules. And so because of that delay, it takes longer for the alpha-gal to find those IgE allergy antibodies on the mast cells and basophils. And that's why there seems to be a delay in um, the allergic response. But this, again, is theory. We haven't we haven't yet done the experiments to prove this.
1: So... Um what are, what are some possible interventions that come to mind for you based on your knowledge of uh, how allergic responses happen? And at what stage yeah. do you think they would be most helpful?
2: Yeah. Um, so in terms of food allergies, so there have been like decades of research trying to figure out how to either cure food allergy or um, similar to what we do with allergy shots for environmental allergies, figure out a way to desensitize people to the food protein you know, of concern, so that if they had an accidental ingestion of that food protein, they either wouldn't have a bad reaction or the type of reaction they would have would be less severe. So there's been a lot of research into trying to come up with treatments like this. And so the biggest one, and the one that was just recently FDA-approved specifically for peanut allergy, is called oral immunotherapy, or OIT for short. And so the idea is you keep giving small amounts of whatever it is that you're allergic to. So let's take peanut, for example. So you give small amounts of peanut orally, and you keep increasing the amount of peanut that you give to the person um, until you basically desensitize the person to this protein. And the thought is that by giving increasingly increasing amounts of this protein that you're allergic to, you change the way the immune system actually looks, looks at and responds to the protein. You change the type of cells that are responsible for responding to the protein. You change the type of antibodies that get released by the B cells in response to the protein. And as a result, your body is better equipped uh, not to respond in an adverse way, basically when you eat the food protein. And so there's this new drug called Palforzia. It was just approved by the FDA um, at the end of January. And essentially what it does is it, it, um, it basically takes this concept of oral immunotherapy to peanut and puts it into like a standardized format that physicians can prescribe to patients who have peanut allergy. So the challenge is that with, these, with this immunotherapy, you can have side effects. You know, like any other medicine, you can have side effects. And so when you're giving someone something you know they're allergic to, even if it's in small amounts, there's always the possibility that they can have an allergic reaction that ha- that can have serious consequences. And so that's why... When when, you're, when a doctor or a patient is trying to decide whether to jump into this oral immunotherapy, you really have to weigh the risks and benefits of the treatment. And the other challenge is that there are some patients where this treatment seems to um, cause what we call sustained unresponsiveness because we don't want to call it a cure per se. But what I mean by that is that they do this treatment for three years, five years, and then it seems like they're now able to incorporate the food, like peanut, into their diet without having a, a bad um, allergic response. But then there are other patients where they do this treatment for three or five years, and maybe for a couple of days afterwards they can have the food, but then their allergy comes right back. And so it's, we, right now we don't have any tests to help us distinguish between the people who will achieve this sustained unresponsiveness, which is kind of like cure, quote-unquote, versus the people who are just going to be desensitized. So that's why it's, it's yeah, a challenging do we, therapy, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Do, do we even understand the difference between someone that's not allergic to peanuts and someone that is? I mean, it sounds like we know, at least in part, what the allergic response looks like, but mm-hmm. what does a healthy person look like, and why do they not have similar receptors on the cells that uh, would be activated to create an allergic I, response? Or, what? you know, the, the food's yeah. the same, supposedly. But yeah. Why the difference? Yeah.
2: I mean, that is a fantastic question. I think it hits at the core of the challenge for the study of food allergy. You're absolutely right. People are looking at all sorts of different things between healthy, non-allergic people and allergic people to try to understand what it is, Um, you know, in an allergic person that sets them off that doesn't seem to set off a healthy person. And you're right. We haven't yet pinpointed it. I mean, People have looked at the microbiome, so the gut microbiome or skin microbiome to try to distinguish between healthy and allergic, and they've seen some differences there you know, there's the more obvious presence of the IgE allergy antibodies against the specific food in the people that are allergic, and you don't see it in the people that are not allergic for many, many, but then there are those individuals who seem to have the allergy antibodies circulating, and they still aren't allergic, and we frankly don't understand what the key differences are between those individuals, and the individuals who have that same allergy antibody and are having allergic reactions. So I think you've really hit the nail on the head that we don't have a, a firm grasp of this, and that's what a lot of researchers are trying to do right now, is to figure out what the, what the key difference, differences are. I mean, it, maybe it could be epigenetics. So for maybe it could be that everyone has the same genetic code, but um, in people who have allergies, certain sections of their genetic code are available you know, for transcription or translation, and that pushes them to have allergic responses, whereas in the healthy individuals or the non-allergic, they don't have those areas of their DNA open and accessible. So you ask fantastic questions, and we don't have a f- full answers for this.
1: Well, what about progression and the response of someone over time to a given allergy? You know, okay. um, So mm-hmm. if someone has a peanut allergy, do we know if they're developing it overnight? Have they always had it? Is it a progressive type thing that appears to evolve after a time? Because, again, maybe like your supposition, they're changing epigenetically and now they're susceptible to it. Like what's known in that regard?
2: Yeah. So um, for people with peanut allergies, so the vast majority of people with these types of allergies will develop them in childhood. Um, However, peanut, tree nut, shellfish and fish allergies are among the um, food allergies that adults can develop as well. But typically, a lot of people with food allergies develop them in childhood. So again, it's not entirely clear you know what the time frame is or the time course is for the development of these allergies, but it definitely appears that there's a subset of allergic individuals, allergic kids, primarily, who can outgrow their allergies. And you tend to see this the most with wheat allergy, cow's milk allergy, soy allergy. So, soy protein allergy, those are the ones where 80% of kids that have these allergies in childhood will outgrow these allergies when they uh, either later in childhood or as an adult. But then there are 20% of those individuals who seem to retain their allergic um, responses to these foods. In the case of peanut allergy or tree nut allergy, it seems to be the reverse. So in that case, 80% of individuals who have a peanut or tree nut allergy in childhood will have, will continue to have those allergies into adulthood, and only 20% or so will outgrow these allergies. Um, and so, in terms of like drilling down to understand like what's the difference, like you know, one thought could be that there's a the population of B cells that are responsible for making the allergy antibodies. They can either be Temporary short lived B cells that circulate in the bloodstream, or they can be these longer lived plasma cells that live in the bone marrow. And so, one thought, and this is something that we're trying to explore in the case of alpha gal allergy, where you actually have adults getting the allergy and adults, quote unquote, outgrowing the allergy or the allergy resolving on its own in adults. We're trying, to, my colleagues actually are trying to explore whether it could be the presence of these longer lived. Um, plasma cells, which are these factories pumping out allergy antibodies, or whether um, people just have these shorter-lived circulating B-cells making antibodies. And that could be the difference between people who never outgrow and people who do outgrow allergies. But I think, you know, that's Uh, only part of this, going to be part of the story. So it'll be complicated. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Is there any, um, I don't know, I mean, uh, it'll be tough to figure this out, but if someone has an allergy to something, you know, peanuts, let's say, are there other foods that either lessen or aggravate the allergy, even though they are different foods to the, the food itself that caused the response?
2: Huh, okay, that's a great question. Um, in terms of specific foods, I haven't really seen much in our literature about any particular foods that may aggravate an allergic response. Um, we do understand that alcohol, um, Alcohol can accelerate or sometimes worsen the severity of allergic responses. And the thought may be that with alcohol, you might be increasing the permeability of your gut. And so more of the, you know, a higher dose of the food protein that you're having the allergic response to gets through. And so that's one reason why you might have a more severe allergic reaction if you've also been drinking. And that's certainly the situation with this alpha-gal red meat allergy um, it seems that when people have, say, a steak with wine or like beer with their hamburger, they're far more likely to have uh, an allergic response to the alpha-gal sugar than if they had lean meat on its own. So that's one thing that can act as an accelerant. The other thing is um, it's not really – in terms of what could help reduce you know, allergic symptoms or possibly prevent the development of an allergic response – Um, But there there haven't been a lot of studies looking at taking these bacteria and trying to use it to prevent food allergy or trying to use it to help cure food allergy or achieve what we call sustained non-responsiveness.
1: Have the uh, microbiomes of people with allergies been sequenced?
2: Yes. So um, there are studies that have taken the microbiomes from infants um, that have milk allergy, for example, um, and looked completely characterized, you know, the microbiomes of these milk allergic infants and then compared them to infants who don't have cow's milk allergy and tried to see what the differences were in terms of the composition of the gut microbiome with the idea that if you could create, you know, a microbiome that's similar to the non-allergic non-cosmic allergic infants, perhaps that could be used to either prevent food allergy in the future or possibly treat individuals or infants that already have cow's milk allergy. So maybe supplementing formula that, you know, these infants have with the appropriate uh, bacteria or microbes that seem to be associated with non-allergic responses, as opposed to allergic responses. So there's there is some of that stuff going on where they're taking a look at the microbial composition between allergic and non-allergic individuals.
1: Well, I mean, you could look at breastfed babies versus formula-fed, and see if mm-hmm. there's correlation in types of allergies and prevalence and all that. Because you know, from what I understand, in breast milk, there's plenty of microbes as oligosaccharides that the microbes you know, encourages certain microbes to take up residence in the baby's gut, et cetera. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. And those studies are being done. They absolutely are. So you're you're right. Hmm.
1: Okay. Are there any, uh, I guess, yeah, you'd you'd want to look for like a pacifying effect uh, either through microbes, you know, probiotic, prebiotic, or maybe certain foods that would... uh, would, mitigate this i mean drugs yeah. of course, they're always looking for drugs to do this
2: stuff. yeah so i mean in terms of like um microbes that seem to promote what we call like a regulatory type environment so there's um, a particular group of of bacteria called the clostridia or clostridium so um actually my phd mentor and a great friend of mine kathy Nigler has done a lot of research in this area, but she's not the only investigator that has identified that these particular, this particular group of microbes um, are in, critically involved in maintaining uh, a gut barrier, so an appropriate um, mucosal lining that does not allow for inflammatory bacteria to cross into the body and create inflammatory responses. In addition, it seems like these this particular group of microbes seems to promote the development of, of what we call regulatory T cells. So instead of producing so-called Th2 T cells or type 2 cells, which are responsible for producing all sorts of chemicals that would promote an allergic-type response, these microbes actually seem to promote these regulatory cells in the gut. And we think that that's part of the reason why having a, an appropriate abundance of these microbes um, allows people to mount normal and non-allergic responses to food. So people are trying to figure out, you know, how to use these, like you're, like you're suggesting, as a way to treat or prevent the development of food allergy. Um, and either they could be used by themselves, or they could be used in conjunction with this oral immunotherapy, with the thought that maybe it could speed the process of generating desensitization or sustained unresponsiveness to foods. Okay. So uh... um, and, Go ahead.
1: Oh, you go ahead. Go
2: ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say then you were saying you were talking about other medications or pharmacologic agents that might also be used to try to treat food allergy. And that's also a really good point to bring up because there are now clinical trials looking at some biologic molecules. So basically, um, there's one called omalizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody that blocks or neutralizes IgE allergy antibodies. And then there's another um, biologic called dupilumab. And dupilumab actually blocks um, two chemicals, so IL-4 and IL-13. And these are two chemicals that have been implicated in a whole range of allergic conditions like um, atopic dermatitis, which is eczema, in asthma, as well as in food allergies. And so I mean, you bring up a good point. The kinds of um, treatments we have now for food allergy are very food allergen specific. So we have this one treatment for peanuts. But if you take it for peanuts, peanut, it's not going to do anything if you also have peanut allergies or egg allergy or milk allergy. And so I think the holy grail now is trying to come up with a treatment that can deal with individuals who have multiple food allergies or that can be applied to, in different food allergies and is not food allergy specific. And the thought is, by targeting these pathways, the IGE and this IL-4, IL-13 pathway, we might actually achieve that. So that's what a lot of new studies are trying to look at currently.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, there's a lot to look at.
2: Yeah, so, no kidding.
1: <laughs> well, very good. Anya, what's the best way for people to learn more from you? You know, maybe get in touch or read papers you're working on or, you know, studies you're conducting. How do they reach out?
2: Yeah. Um, so they can uh, look for my website.
1: Okay. Very good. Uh, any last words or, uh, you know, I mean, it's been a very um, good call. We've brought up a lot of stuff, but anything else you'd like to talk about?
2: Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, just that, you know, allergy immunology is a super exciting field and I hope a lot of people get interested in it because, you know, based on our discussion, we, st- we we understand a little, but there's still a ton of stuff we don't fully understand about how allergies develop and how we can treat them. So there's a lot of room, you know, for research in the field.
1: Mm, okay. Well, very good. Well, yeah, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you for inviting me. This
0: was fantastic. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.